Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 82 being recorded on Wednesday, May 10th, 2017. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. And as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome, Jason and Scott Show listeners. Let me first apologize. It is peak pollen season here in sunny Raleigh, North Carolina, and my allergies have attacked me and I have a sore throat. So I apologize for the... Um, the lowness of my voice. Uh, however, I will be doing some Darth Vader quotes later, so it will come in handy. Uh, uh, Jason, before we dive in, it's been about a week and a half before we've chatted. Any road trips you want to report on? I do. I have a couple updates. First of all, uh, very sorry to fear, hear you're feeling under the weather. It sort of harkens me back to our, our famous shop talk shows where I didn't have much of a voice. Yeah, uh, and our live listeners are totally on it. The uh, I've gotten a bunch of live text messages since I just did the intro, and this is actually episode eighty-three. So I want to apologize for the false false intro a minute ago, but thank you to all those folks that are listening to the show live. Um, so Scott, this week I was uh, I got to do a trade show in town in Chicago in my hometown, which is a rare treat for me. Um, WB Research does a show every year for the B two B industry called B two B Online. So I I uh, just got to go do a presentation there yesterday and uh, talk to some folks about uh, B2B e-commerce, which is sort of an interesting contrast to the the retail stuff that we, we mostly talk about. Yeah. Did you get a lot of questions about Amazon business? That's what everyone always asks me. So not as many as I would hope. I would take it as a better sign if people were a little more concerned in that space about Amazon business. Um, uh, perhaps a parallel to some of the things we'll talk about today the there's some really advanced uh, B2B e-commerce companies, but the general level is pretty digitally immature. And so, you know, you tend to be talking to people in that industry that you were talking to retailers about maybe four or five years ago. Um, and I, I have a theory that, that a lot of the CPG space are also somewhat digitally immature and are, are rapidly trying to catch up. And so we, uh, we, we may get to hit upon that in today's episode. Cool was part of your talk to call the audience digitally immature. They love. Uh, I do talk about the digital maturity curve, and I let them judge for themselves where where they're on. Um, but my talk uh, is ironic because I, I was mainly talking um, to stakeholders that were really interested in launching B two B initiatives inside uh, or e commerce in, initiatives inside their company about how to get C suite buy in. And since I've been kicked out of so many C suites, I thought maybe that was an ironic choice for me. Well, tad ironic, yeah. Your C-suite uh, immature. Exactly. I've been in a lot of C-suites just for a brief period of time. <laughs> You're mature at getting kicked out of C-suites. Exactly. I'm high on the kicked out curve, low on the maturity curve. <laughs> uh, so, Scott, one of my favorite things about the show is, uh, you know, from time to time, we get some nice listeners that write in and say nice things about the show and how it's helped their career or, or taught them something. And I, I always enjoy that. But I, I feel like this week I may have gotten my favorite piece of fan mail. Cool. Who's it from and what'd they say? Yeah. Uh, so it is from a listener, Anne Marie, who runs an e-commerce site called dogquality.com. And she's a regular listener and had a recent occasion to go to 
our website where the show notes are and there there's an about me tab there with a picture of me and my dog MacGyver. And so Anne Marie, who obviously is in the dog industry, saw MacGyver and wrote MacGyver a piece of fan mail. Wow. Are you going to read it for us? Uh, well, I won't, I, I won't read the whole letter. Uh, she was very kind. Apparently dog quality, uh, focuses on elder dog quality of life and, and products that, that older dogs specifically need. And she was nice enough to say that MacGyver looked like a spring chicken and probably didn't need any of her products, but she, she certainly offered to hook MacGyver up should, should the needs need ever arise. And I was laughing because she doesn't know this, but but uh, MacGyver is a frequent guest on the show. MacGyver is generally sitting on my lap for the show, and so he was very pleased to find out that he finally got some of the recognition that he he well deserved. Cool. When we were at Shop Talk, it sounded like he was uh, he was doing your part. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> he he's a man of few words, but but he's uh, much more insightful than I am. And uh, I don't know if listeners know this, but I think you have a couple dogs that have at least made a cameo appearance on the show as well, don't you? Yeah, sometimes in my podcast recording studio here, which is also my home office, the uh, my ten year old border collie Kit sits on the floor, and uh, we have a one year old Cavalier named Lulu, and she usually sits on my lap. But tonight, um, they are elsewhere, hanging out with the kids. Nice. <laughs> Well, Jason, before the podcast goes to the dogs, we have an exciting guest for the listeners tonight. Uh, as you and listeners are well aware, I'm a little bit obsessed with all things Amazon. And every time I talk to tonight's guest, I learn a ton about uh, what makes Amazon tick. Andrea Lee spent a decade at Amazon from 05 to 15 and now runs a consulting firm called Andrea K. Lee Consulting, where she helps brands and sellers with their Amazon strategies as well as other e-commerce growth initiatives. I'm hosting a workshop at Internet Retailer Conference and Exhibition, which is uh, commonly abbreviated IRCE. And Andrea is one of our speakers uh, talking about advanced strategies for brands that want to negotiate with Amazon. Andrea, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Cool. And so we've got Central covered with Jason in Chicago. I'm East, and I assume you're in Seattle. Is that right? I am indeed. How's the weather? Is it is it typical Seattle, or are you guys getting your sunny days? No, we're, we've got a little bit of sun, but you know, it's still we still have to get to the Fourth of July before summer really starts here. Cool. So um, we really want to jump into it. So one background statement before we jump in. Um, Sometimes we get feedback from listeners. We'll jump right into some of these topics, and I neglect to cover some of the basics. So tonight we're going to use phrases like 1P, 3P hybrid. When we say 1P, uh, specifically in the Amazon context, that's usually that someone has a wholesale relationship or a first-party relationship with Amazon. Third-party usually refers to more of a marketplace kind of a relationship. Uh, and then hybrid is there's a lot, lot of brands now that are exploring kind of a dual approach. So a wholesale and a marketplace approach. So I just wanted to let our listeners kind of have that, that little glossary there at the top of the show before we jump into it. And I'll turn it over to Jason, who is dying to kick it off. Thanks, Scott. Um, and let me highlight for our listeners that are not driving while they're listening to podcasts that the whole 1P3P hybrid thing also makes for an excellent drinking game. <laughs> Um, so, so Andrew, before we, we get into that, and I, I actually have a one P three P question for you where I think there may be some Andrea Scott controversy, or at least I hope there is. Um, but before we go there, um, maybe we can, uh, start with a little bit of background about you and, uh, sort of, uh, you could walk us through how you got into this industry and what some of your experiences. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I spent, you know, probably the majority of my career at Amazon. Um, I was there for 10 years from 2005 to 2015. And I was, um, I worked in the retail group for the entire time um, in different roles. I actually started as one of the um, founding original buyers for the Amazon.com grocery category um, and, you know, kind of m- migrated my way through the company. Uh, a number of different roles, um, including divisional manager for the baby category and working on um, getting the Amazon um, baby registry kind of revamped and, and in good good order with customers, um, as well as uh, leading um, category teams for Amazon Fresh. And the role I had most recently before I left and for the longest, actually, for a little over three years was <clears throat> category leader for hard lines, soft lines, um, and consumables for Amazon Canada, where, um, and we launched consumables and soft lines um, while I was there. I also ran the Prime program in Canada and um, was the liaison with the with the transportation team. Um, in addition, I, I worked on the, the crap process for Canada, helped develop that and get that thing running up there. Um, if that's not a term that everyone's familiar with, that's Amazon's term for can't realize any profit, um, which is sort of their way of um, identifying items that are unprofitable for them. And I left Amazon two years ago to start my own consulting practice where I work now with brands, a lot of them that I worked with while I was at Amazon, um, you know, to help them achieve their goals on Amazon, whatever those might be, growth, profit, um, you know, assortment planning, etc. Um, and in the category leadership role at Amazon, if you're not familiar with that sort of structure, it's kind of like a general manager and you're responsible for all of uh, buying or vendor management, planning and in-stock management, marketing, product management, um, sometimes some technology um, uh, teams as well. So that's kind of a little bit about that role. So for the last two years, I've been working um, in have, in consulting. I have um, been working directly with brands, um, doing some speaking, doing some writing, and I'm actually recently partnered with Melissa Burdick um, to kind of team up our consulting practice. Um, and yeah, so that's that's kind of what I've what I've been up to. Very cool. Uh, just a couple of questions about that. A, uh, you you sort of uh, went from being the evil buyer to helping brands. <laughs> is that is that kind of like going from the federal government to becoming a lobbyist? Is there a mandatory waiting <laughs> period or anything? Um, you know, it feels like there should be, um, but but there's not. But I mean, I really feel like, for the most part, the work that I do is really in Amazon's best interest. I mean, when I and it's actually one of the reasons I wanted to start my own firm. I mean, in the early days at Amazon, vendor managers spent a lot of time with their brands. I spent a lot of time with my brands, helping them figure out how to grow, how to use the platform, how to understand it, how to be successful, and kind of coaching them and teaching. And you know, as Amazon scaled and grew and become more automated. And as my role grew um, and I took on larger teams, I just found that I was spending, you know, very little time talking with brands and Amazon in general was spending very little time kind of in that teaching capacity. Um, 
and so, you know, that's, that was kind of one of the reasons that I wanted to, to, to do this. Um, I, I think with just a, like a small amount of education uh, about the Amazon platform, um, you know, brands can see some really amazing success by applying some really basic principles and, um, and it's not hard, you know, it's, it's, I think it can be pretty straightforward um, once you understand how Amazon is different from other retailers. Cool. Are there certain types of brands you primarily work with or um, you know, CPG seems to be a wheelhouse kind of area for you or you're a little bit all over the map? You know, I've been kind of all over the map, large and small, um, and and in, in a number of different categories. But I will say that the CPGs tend to have kind of the biggest challenges on Amazon, particularly because um, they were, you know, they're they're often doing like pretty um, sizable businesses. In addition to um, just having a lot of products that are really difficult for Amazon to ship profitably, so I think they kind of they 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 have the most challenges um, as it relates to sort of working with with the a, a a platform or a business model where products are shipped directly to customers often in single units. Um, but I, but I work with all kinds of brands, um, you know, across all, all categories. Nice. And, uh, you mentioned you were in baby for a while. And if I have the timeline, right. Uh, the Quidzy acquisition happened yeah, right in the middle while, of your tenure. Yep. Right in the middle of my tenure. Exactly. And it's funny because I remember when they first kind of got on our radar and we were, you know, we were really thinking about, oh, like they're getting some really great brands on the site and how are they doing that? And I remember thinking like, we should go for this. Like we should do, we should go get them. Um, we should acquire them. But, um, and it's, it's really interesting. Um, but I mean, you know, you know how all acquisitions go. It's pretty, it's pretty hush hush internally kind of as that stuff's happening. Yeah. Uh, but so did you literally go from hating them and they were a nemesis to, <laughs> to like becoming a partner? You know, I had moved on to another category by the time we actually started integrating, integrating with them. Um, but, you know, I was there. I was definitely there for the acquisition piece. And, um, you know, they were doing they were just at the time um, just doing a really nice job, particularly on diapers.com, um, you know, getting new customers. And as we all know, that time when um, a consumer becomes a parent is just such a pivotal point in terms of uh, brand loyalty and brand switching is really high at that point. Um, and they were just really, um, they were seeing a lot of success with some of their marketing tactics um, in, you know, capturing that consumer as well as, um, you know, getting a lot of kind of more prestige, um, higher end baby brands to 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 partner with them nice and i don't know if we've talked about this on the show and i i will certainly understand if you uh don't want to share an opinion but um you know there's been a little controversy as as listeners probably do know they <laughs> they spun down quincy this year yeah uh, and there's at least uh one of our friends in the media jason delray that that uh yep. sort of has this hypothesis that it literally was out of spite for Mark Laurie, who's who's competing with um, Amazon at at Walmart, um, and I, I I'll, I'll just say for the record, I personally don't believe. I, I don't know what the real logic was behind uh, spinning it down. I can imagine there's a story that we don't know, but I have a hard time believing <laughs> that you know potentially several hundred people are getting laid off uh, uh, purely out of some competitive spite on the part of. Uh, of yeah, I read Jason's article about that. 
Yeah, I read Jason's article about that. I mean, I think that's possible. And obviously, I don't know. I mean, I don't work there anymore. But um, I speculate that, you know, Amazon just sort of got what they needed out of that relationship. Um, And there wasn't a lot of sense in keeping up separate websites. I mean, over the years, Amazon had tried to spin out other websites. And it's just really challenging. I mean, it's really challenging to drive traffic to a new site. I mean, as Amazon saw with the endless um, launch and then take down, um, they've got so much they, they have so much traffic sort of going to their native site. Um, so kind of continuing to support, you know, additional websites just seems really, um, really tough. And I'm not really sure why that would be a great strategy for them. Um, and, you know, if you think about like, they sort of, they sort of got what they needed out of that um, arrangement um, in that they were able to, you know, take out a, a, who is a, a fast growing and competitor that was gaining a lot of traction. You know, this is go, going back like 10 years ago. Um and prevent them from sort of like becoming, you know, a, a real material competitor. And then in addition to that, um, you know, they were able, you know, to integrate some of that inventory or those brands onto their own site, you know, maybe some of the brands that were harder for them to, um, you know, to acquire. So I just kind of feel like they got what they needed and it's really expensive having a, a second site. I mean, it's possible there was some spite there. It is like truly when you look at that whole its story. I mean, it's like a soap opera it, it is. <laughs> in terms of the level of drama. Um, I mean, it's, I think it's just fascinating, but I, I agree. I think Amazon is a company with more integrity than, um, you know, than one that might, you know, have all uh, act out of spite and, you know, um, just have a lot of people suffer. No, I think the URL consolidation makes a lot of sense. And, and there, there are just good business reasons for <laughs> for Amazon ultimately to go there. Uh, the one, I, I guess, ironic thing is uh, they thought they were making an acquisition to take out a competitor, and all that money they used in the acquisition ultimately was used to create a new competitor. So I guess... <laughs> well, that's the, that's the like, soap opera or ir- irony. I'm not really sure if that's irony, yeah. um, but that's the, you know, that's the real twist in it. The, the irony of me is that I use the word irony uh, wrong all the time. <laughs> Uh, so changing topics you you mentioned the crap program in canada and we we talked about uh crap a little bit on one of the other shows um but uh uh, maybe you're in a good position to confirm or deny i feel like the rumor is that that was started as an internal term that was not intended to be public facing and somehow escaped Exactly. That's what I wrote in one of my articles. It was not intended to be public facing um, at all. It was a term that was developed by the finance team. Like I very clearly recall this and I don't know, I can't imagine Amazon would care if I shared this. It's sort of just funny. Um, and, you know, I remember sitting in the fir- one of the first meetings where the finance team brought us this program and, and the program in and of itself totally makes sense. You know, let's look at stuff that's unprofitable. Let's figure out how to get it more profitable. Um uh, but the acronym <laughs> was just really terrible. And I remember we all kind of just looked at each other like, Real, this is where we're going with? Like, really? Um, and, you know, I, I don't think it was ever meant to be uttered to vendors, but now it's out there. Um, and now it's like an industry term. It's it's really awkward because a, a category that's particularly vulnerable to crap <laughs> is, of course, toilet paper. Um, and so when you're talking to a, a CPG manufacturer that's talking about their toilet paper getting crapped out, it's really um, the uh, the the potty humor goes goes downhill really fast. 
Yeah. And I mean, I don't think that the, I don't think that the humor of that was lost on them. Right. I mean, diapers and toilet paper are two of the kind of like really, un, really difficult items to ship to customers profitably. Um, and so I'm pretty sure there was some, there sure. was some strategy around the name, but the funny part is like, by the time I left, we were just tossing it around in meetings and like, it was, I mean, the term had lost all of its like connotations. Yep. Um, and, and I think it's funny now when I talk with brands and I, and I talk about crap and, um, they're like, what? Like, whoa. <laughs> like, yeah, it's this term. Amazon came up with it. It's, it has an acronym. You can explain it. So disgusting. So the shocking part to me is not that any of that happened. The shocking part to me is when you moved to Canada that you didn't find a nicer, friendlier term for Canada because Canada just <laughs> is nicer and friendlier. You know, that's a really good point. Like at that point, it didn't even occur to me that when we started the program in Canada, we could have called it something else. But, um, you know, it's too late now. No, no worries. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, one, one last topic, uh, before I let, let, uh, Scott get a word in edgewise, um, you, at the beginning of the show, you talked about, uh, or Scott introduced the concept of one P and three P and we talk a lot about one P and three P and, uh, when a three P seller is using FBA as their distribution strategy, uh, Scott and I on the show have generally talked about them being a three P seller that uses FBA. Uh, and I've noticed in some of your writing that you call uh, FBA sellers two P. So I'm I'm just curious if you and Scott have a uh, are are aligned on that vernacular or if, or if, uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I think I think of three P as sort of encompassing both merchant fulfilled as well as. Um, fulfilled by Amazon. So, you know, where Amazon is storing the inventory shipping on your behalf, but you're still a seller, that's 2P, um, the fulfilled by Amazon program. And then 3P can include that, but um, usually is referring to merchants that ship out of their own warehouses. Got it. So what do you call vendor fulfilled FBA? Or- I would call that 2P. Got it. And Scott, are you, are you okay with that? Uh, I try to keep it simpler. So I think that would maybe confuse people. So <laughs> I don't know. Is, is that an official Amazon we can, stance or is that just something? No, actually I never heard these terms until I left. Um, and, yeah. but they're sort of what a lot of my clients use um, to describe the different business models and what some of the folks in this kind of like ancillary Amazon industry um, tend to use. So that's, those are, those are the ones I've adopted, but um, you know, there's, I mean, you could, the really simple version is one P is, or retail is Amazon buying product from brands and reselling it. And then 3P is where um, the brand or the other retailers uses Amazon's platform or services. Yeah. Cool. One thing I wanted to jump into before we get uh, too nerdy on the e-commerce side is I, I saw in your bio, you were part of the Amazon bar raiser program. Uh, I've studied that a lot as a, you know, I'm kind of obsessed with Amazon's culture and, and how they've built such a large company that remains innovative and doesn't seem to have a lot of bureaucracy. Uh, and it seems like the bar raiser program is kind of in the last couple of years has been cited as a really kind of key contributor to that, uh, for listeners that aren't following that as closely as I am, maybe give us a quick background of bar raiser and, um, you know, tell us your, about your experience being in that program. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and if you're really interested in Amazon's culture and how they stay innovative, I actually, you'll love my next article. I've got one coming out in another week that just really just phones in on that specific topic. Um, Do you need an so editor the, for that at all? Okay. I'll, uh, I'll pre-read uh, it for you. 
<laughs> I would love that, actually. It would probably be really useful. Um, so the Bar Razor program, um, and I think this has been published, so I don't think there's anything like confidential here, but it's um, it's essentially a program within Amazon where there's a, a select set of interviewers that are meant to teach other interviewers how to interview. So this is like the, the more experienced set of interviewers go through specific training to teach others how to interview. Um, and then, you know, you need to have... Um, you need to have someone in this pro- from this program, or at least you, you did when I was there, uh, on every interview loop. Um, so bar raisers are, are busy; <laughs> they do a lot of interviews. Um, and you know the the idea is not that that's like the tough interview or whatever. I think that's been written before, um, but it's actually not true. It's it's that that's the person that facilitates the conversation and really draws out all of the insights from the interview from all of the people who interviewed the candidate. Um, and really make sure that you're having a cohesive discussion and that you're applying kind of the, 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 a consistent set of principles to hiring decisions um, across the company. And so it's meant for consistency and for um, maintaining the culture, uh, not for being like a really t- particularly tough interviewer, although probably some of them are really tough interviewers. Um, so I was in that program mo- mo- uh, most of my time there. I mean, because I was kind of... I started there, um, you know, kind of at, w- before they started some of their real significant growth. And I got into it early. And I think I think by the time I left, I had done almost a thousand interviews um, and, and, and made, you know, made a lot of hires kind of during that time period. <laughs> cool. So you're in the interview and then you also lead a post-interview kind of debrief. Is that yeah. kind of what I'm hearing? Okay. Exactly, exactly. And the idea is just really for for consistency and for, um, you know, some, I think the same is true in any organization where you've got sometimes folks on interview loops that, you know, don't have as much interviewing experience or, um, you know, have are struggling a little more to apply some of the, the principles, um, you know, the leadership principles or still learning the leadership principles. Um, and so, you know, the idea is that there's there's kind of someone in the room that's that's got some experience with that and can help guide the conversation. Cool. And the, the articles I've read say it's because of this. Well, number one, usually the bar raiser is in a different uh, department. So you would be the bar raiser for like engineering or something. And some other person would bar raise for um, buyer group or something like that. Uh, yeah. I mean, the idea is like I couldn't I couldn't facilitate a conversation about someone who's going to be on my team. Um, you know, you want sort of an external perspective. But I think that's just a general interviewing practice at Amazon anyway, regardless of whether it's a bar raiser or not is just to get a lot of perspectives on a candidate. I think the weirdest interview I ever participated in was for, um, it was a, uh, like a math scientist, like an economist mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm not an economist. And, um, I remember prepping for that interview and just thinking like, what am I going to ask? Like, I'm not, if I, if I did try to give this person some economist questions, I would be hard pressed to judge the quality of the answers. And I, I remember though, sitting in the debrief and I don't, didn't know anything about the content of this person's work, but it was remarkable. Like the, the process of determining if they were a good candidate was like the same. I mean, it was really, it really didn't change. 
Right. So did you have a go-to question like why are manhole covers round or how do you move a mountain? <laughs> <laughs> we had a lot of crazy ones. Um, you know, I, I think one of my favorite ones was someone had asked, I had heard someone else ask it in an interview because part of our raising is like you, you train people and you shadow and you, um, you go along. And someone had said something about like your job is to launch the houseplants category, live houseplants category on Amazon. Like what would you, like, how would you approach this, this business launch or something? And I remember just thinking like that is that's a tough one (laughs) mostly because it's just kind of like shocking um anyway i think that's where you go to selling seeds (laughs) exactly exactly uh and it, it occurs to me that like in addition to consulting with brands on how to do well on amazon you could also do interview consulting for candidates is you have you uh helped anyone interview since you left um, I mean, a little bit, um, here and there, you know, some projects and I, and I had a consulting project recently where there was a component of it where they were looking for some, um, some guidance on sort of like their organizational structure and, um, and how to, how to sort of resource this business and what skill sets and things like that are, are critical. Um, so a little bit, but you know, the core of it has been, you know, people would want to, people just tend to want to talk to me about <laughs> crap and one P two P three P and how to negotiate with Amazon. I mean, those seem to be the, the, the topics that are the biggest draw. Uh, uh, so one of the questions I always like to ask ex Amazonians, I've never worked for Amazon, but, uh, uh, have, have great admiration, uh, for the company and, and, uh, the caliber of, of former employees I've met. Um, but all the reading I do, it, it frankly comes off as a totally unappealing place to work. Um, and I, I've, I've talked to ex-Amazonians that sort of concur, and I've talked to ones that wildly disagree. And so I guess I'm just curious. Well, most of the ones that don't agree um, probably still work there. Um, no, I, I I thought it was an amazing and inspiring place to work. Um, I mean, I have... I, I just had a really incredible experience there. I feel really fortunate to have worked with um, the high quality caliber of people that I was, that I interacted with, um, you know, as I'm working with more and more um, clients and other organizations, I'm just realizing, you know, that how remarkable that was. Um, I learned a ton. I mean, I, I, I feel like I, I had some pretty nice career trajectory there that you might not see at, um, you know, other types of organizations. Um, I mean, I thought it was an amazing place. I think, you know, when you think about like that, um, what was it, the um, Wall Street Journal article that was like, it was right when I was leaving that that article was published about how terrible it is to work at the corporate headquarters and people cry at their desks and, you know, you know that article, yeah. um, you know, everything in it, except probably some of the, I feel like some of the past employee, like the people who had been fired sort of testimonials sounded off. Like they didn't sound consistent with the company that I knew. Um, but the rest of the data was like pretty true. I mean, it's a really hard, it's really hard. <laughs> it's hard to make history and you work, you're working with some of the smartest people I think around. Um, but the article was just really, um, 
in that it didn't talk about all the amazing things about working there. I mean, Amazon recruits at like, um, you know, top five business schools, all those people like have a choice. <laughs> like they don't have to work there and they have lots of options. Um, but people keep working there for a reason. And it's because it's super inspiring and you get to be innovative and build your own business. Um, you get to, you get to do hiring, you get to take on a lot of responsibility. Um, you know, if you have an idea and it's a good one and you can put together a good business case for it, it's still, even though it's a big company now, it's still the type of place where you can, um, you can see that through. Um, and so, I mean, I think it's, I think it's an incredible place to work. I think it's a, probably a, it's a, it's a, it's like running, um, a marathon, you know, you can't, you, it has to, like, it has to stop at some point. Um, I think it's hard to, it would be hard to work there your whole life. But there's no free snacks. Bananas, there are free no bananas. Free snacks. There's no free snacks. Um, they give you the cheap pens. You know, the standout notebooks are like the, you know, the 50 cent ones. Um, yeah, there's no, there's no perks. It's, it's frugality is one of the, the key um, leadership principles. Yeah, and you can't use PowerPoint. And Jason and I make a living on PowerPoint. So that's, that's <laughs> yeah, you have starve. to get, you write really dense white papers. Um, I think I think I got some of the best writing training um, there in just figuring out how to cram the most amount of data <laughs> into like the shortest white paper possible. Yeah, so that that brings up one of my biggest gripes with ex Amazonians. I'm I'm always super excited when I hire one because I'm thinking like I'm gonna get these really insightful, well written, long form deliverables, um, and then I keep getting these crappy powerpoints from them. They're just so excited to use PowerPoint. Exactly. That's that's exactly. It's just it's been repressed for so many years. You know, it's funny now. Like in my consulting business, I use PowerPoint for almost everything. I'm one of those people. I totally am. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a little bit disappointing for me. I have to be honest. Um. So you know, one of the the categories that I'm super interested in at the moment and spending a lot of time in is grocery. And and uh, you 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 have some great experience in the in fresh at Amazon. My my premise is in North America, wholesale e commerce like the battle has basically already already been won, right? Like you know, frequent frequent statement in my practice is you're not going to out Amazon Amazon. Um, and so you're, you're looking for little niches or, or, you know, little plays around the edges, but like, you know, jet nor anyone else is necessarily going to just build a, a 400 million SKU general merchandise catalog and, and capture majority market share from Amazon. Um, but I do believe that grocery is a huge category, potentially larger than general merchandise that just now is, coming into play for, for, uh, digital commerce and, you know, however you deliver that. Um, and so I do feel like it's a white space and I think we're seeing sort of Walmart, uh, Amazon and, you know, to a lesser extent, the, the pure plays and Kroger and stuff, uh, all, all battling it out. Is that, uh, are you following that category at all still? And what, what's oh, your absolutely. Absolutely. Um, both sort of professionally and also personally, my husband has a firm, um, IDEO Click, and they build like click and collect software. Um, so I follow it religiously. Um, and I think, that, I mean, you, you mentioned like the, the consumables categories are just, they're enormous. I mean, they dwarf 
some of the other um, general merchandise categories. But I think the beauty of them for e-commerce is that they um, they drive frequency in traffic. And, you know, I think once once Amazon and once other retailers kind of caught on to this, um, they realized how important it is to make this work online. Because, you know, when you think about it, like you only buy a coffee maker like every couple of years, you don't need that many big screen TVs. Like those don't, those types of products don't drive frequency in visits, but you need toilet paper like every week. So, you know, these categories, I mean, brick and mortar has known this forever. Like those, those are the traffic trip drivers. And, you know, they called them, I think they called them trip drivers. They get people into the store. We sell them some other stuff. I mean, the same model holds true online. Um, you know, you get customers traffic through the consumable categories. And then, you know, while they're there, hopefully they buy other things. Yeah. And so like, and obviously you're in Seattle, so you get to see a lot of the, the first iteration of concepts. Um, I assume you've walked by the, the go store if you haven't snuck in with an old badge or anything. And uh, I, don't get in trouble like- on the show. Don't get in trouble on the show. I, I like almost begged to be let in, but yeah, I have gone by. And we also, because we're in Seattle, we get all the pilots, like stuff that never even rolled out anywhere else. Um, like we had a tote program here for a while where I think that was only in like two or three markets where, and this was, I think this was the precursor to um, Prime Now where, you know, they would deliver your stuff in like a, a bag on your porch with no overboxing or anything. Um I mean, I'm sure it was really expensive to get all this stuff to us, but that was pretty cool. And you could sign up for like a tote day. It was like your regularly scheduled day. So we get all kinds of pilots here, which is kind of fun. You get to see all the experimentation um, with Amazon. So, yeah, I've been by the ghost store. I haven't gone in. Um, and <laughs> I think it's I think it's really I think it's one of the more remarkable technologies that Amazon has built. Just it's called Just Walkout Technology. Hashtag um, JWAP. Like you literally just walk out of the store, which actually sounds kind of awful if I'm shopping with my kids, but I'm sure Amazon will figure out how to deal with that. Yeah. Uh, as, as we pointed out early on when they launched that concept, they're claiming it's this big new revolutionary thing. Um, and uh, myself and a lot of my peers were using that technology in high school. So <laughs> not sure it's quite as, as impressive. Uh, have you got a chance to go by the, the uh, fresh pickup location yet? No, I haven't. But that's the second launch of those in Seattle. We had another pilot years ago um, that that piloted pickup points. So I've seen, I've, I've seen the model and I know where the spot is. In fact, I was thinking maybe next week. I don't think it's up and running yet, but I was going to tr- go do a drive by and just check it out. Um, they've got two pickup stations in Seattle. I mean, according to the videos and stuff, they look really cool. Like it looks like a drive through. It looks like a drive in burger joint with like all the angled parking. Um it's pretty, it's pretty cool. And then, you know, they just bring it all out and put it in your, in your car. But I mean, this figuring out pickup, I mean, I think Amazon's just realizing it's super expensive to ship dog food to customers, <laughs> like airship dog food to a prime customer. And you're totally upside down on the economics. Um, and, you know, in order to be competitive and figure out like how to make money in the space, you have to figure out how to get people to come to you and sell them a bunch of stuff at once. Yeah, for sure. And it, uh, I do think that's going to be the dominant model for grocery. Like I, I think, you know, and, and you, you certainly experienced this with fresh, but like, you know, most of the Amazon goods get delivered on a route and you can bundle a bunch of deliveries and it can be really efficient. But when you deliver fresh and the person has to be home to receive it because they have to put it in the refrigerator, 
Um, suddenly you're not doing routes except in, in a few really high dense locations. You're, you're doing individual deliveries in that, that's super expensive. And for most of the country, the economics just don't work. And so it seems like, uh, saving all that shopping time and having that pickup, uh, I, it, at least my theory is that's going to be the, the mainstream digital grocery experience. And I've, I've literally now seen, thousands of consumer interviews where they just talk about it being life-changing when they start using that, that feature from whomever they use it from. Which is, which is really funny because like, this isn't a new feature. Like you used to, <laughs> when I was a kid, we used to call the grocery store, we tell them what we wanted and we drive by and pick it up. Like there's not a new model, <laughs> yeah. but, but I think, I think at scale, it's probably a new model. I mean, I just grew up in a small town. Yeah. Um, but I think what's really interesting is the whole evolution of this thing. Like I remember going to the trade shows in like 2006, going to like the candy and confectionery and, um, and talking with brands and saying, come sell on Amazon. And they were like, that's crazy. Like, why would you sell food on Amazon? And then there was like, they all signed up and, and, and now it's like a, a race. It was a race for a long time. You know, who would get there first, who would have capture all the market share, who could work, work most strategically with Amazon and other in Walmart and, you know, whomever else. And then everyone now has everyone knows grocery categories, but I think now it's like at scale. And now these categories aren't small anymore for these retailers. And now they're just like a big, um, profits suck. And so how do you figure out how to make it work? And that's, I mean, that's where I think a lot of the experimentation comes into play for a, a lot of these players, um, you know, with trying different models to see what might work. Um, you know, in Seattle, we have fresh, we have prime. Now we have pickup points. We have the, um, Amazon go store. I mean, that's four different models that Amazon's experimenting with and that's just Amazon. And then you're seeing really the rise of click and collect, which I totally agree with you. I think, um, click and collect is the next Next. That's the next thing, um, because I'm already fatiguing. Uh, I mean, I've been shopping for my groceries online since we launched Fresh in um, 2007 here, and I'm fatiguing at the pricing. You know, it's just it's just cheaper at Safeway. Like it just yeah. is because the economics are different, and they don't have to ship it to me, and you know they don't have a driver. Um, and I'm sure Amazon's figured out you know how to make all that stuff work, but you know, the reality is it's just more expensive. And even with Prime Now and even Instacart and I ordered Costco.com and Safeway.com, you know, I try like all the different models and, you know, even Safeway.com has to offer higher prices online and they don't have some of the in-store specials online. And so I'm, I mean, as a consumer, I'm fatiguing of, of the pricing. I'm just like, groceries just shouldn't cost this much. Like, and it's tempting to go back to the store, um, you know, but that's kind of horrible. So Scott, I think Scott would be horrified like, if you did that. <laughs> like we're ripe. We're just so ripe for, um, the next model. Yeah. And I, I believe it's click and collect and I believe it's going to be profitable. And I believe whatever grocers get on board with this, the fastest are the ones that are going to, um, you know, they're really going to steal all the share. Yeah. Well, I think that tidal wave is, is coming. It's going to be fun to watch. Uh, you're certainly right. It's not a new model. There used to be this thing in the world called, um, milkman. That. Yeah, totally. We had, we actually had a milk box. I mean, yeah. we no one delivered anything to it, but it still existed in our house. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so at the end of the day, do you think there's a chance that someone other than Amazon wins that space? Like, do you, could you foresee a, a Walmart or a Kroger or someone else? 
Well, it depends on how fast they can move. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. It's not a complicated model. You order it online, you know, you pick it out of your stores and, you know, you let customers come pick it up. We've got it here at Fred Meyer locally in Seattle. Um, so it's not, I don't think it's a challenging model, but I think a lot of these larger grocers are kind of, I don't want to call I don't want to say freaking out, but they're, they're kind of um, flummoxed by the, the concept of like setting up a retailer website. And what does that mean? How do you upsell customers? How do you do it right? And how do you let brands do marketing on it. I mean, cause you're basically recreating like an amazon.com grocery store online and that, you know, that feels really overwhelming. Um, and so I don't think they're moving real fast. And I think it's just going to be like, who moves, who moves fast. Um, but I do think it'll be hard to compete with Amazon's automation and personalization as it relates to marketing. Um, they're just, they're just so good at it. And so far, you know, I haven't seen any other retailers that have even touched it. Um, and that's, you know, really where you get like the, you're able to drive customers to larger basket sizes online and um, help them discover product and be predictive about like when they're about to run out of things and that kind of thing. Cool. Uh, it's funny. I was, I'm a big fan of the show Silicon Valley and uh, this is not a spoiler, but in last week's episode, they, the two of the characters went to the grocery store and they were the only non taskers in the grocery store. There's like 80 people in the grocery <laughs> store. <laughs> Oh, I can't wait to see that episode. Yeah, I love that yeah, show. That's pretty yeah. funny. Yeah, that, it was it was cute. That is a great point. Like I, I the one you're you're hundred percent right about the price fatigue. The one loophole is it can be really cheap to deliver groceries to your home when you get a venture capitalist to pay the delivery fee. So, <laughs> or Google. Yeah. So I feel like at the moment there's this this short window of opportunity. I encourage everyone to uh, to use all that good Andreessen Horowitz money to deliver their groceries. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, just to change topics a little bit. So in your consulting gig, you, you spend a lot of time with brands. You talked about the things they want to talk about, which is crap and pricing and negotiating one P two P three P. What are some of the pitfalls you see them falling into? And, you know, do they, they come to you and they say, Oh my gosh, I've, I've got this problem. What are, you know, what are some of the pitfalls that you wish brands would avoid before they come to you? Well, I don't know if there are things like pitfalls I wish they'd avoid, but but a, a consistent theme that I'm seeing is that a lot of them, especially in the CPG space, are only thinking like one or two years ahead. And it's kind of a reactive model um, or a reactive way of thinking to Amazon's kind of, I mean, they've always had the crap program, but I think they're getting a little stricter about it in kind of the last one to two years. And so, you know, a lot of these brands are getting a lot of items crapped out. Um, they're trying to keep up with like how to, how to leverage Amazon's new marketing platforms. And they're just really focused on the here and now and not, I don't think thinking too much about where does the, where does this thing go in two years? I mean, Amazon's never going to make money shipping dog food and cat litter across the United States. So like, what does the future of this look like? And I don't think a lot of them are spending enough time thinking about that because this is when you want to plant your seeds for that. So, you know, if, if, if the next big model is, I mean, and, and I, I, my, my opinion is on Amazon, they're really going to figure out the pantry program. I mean, the way to economically ship product to customers, um, you know, that are, that is, that is traditionally unprofitable in a direct to customer like shipping model is to put it in a box with a whole bunch of other stuff that, so it perfectly fits, um, and charge the customer like a nominal fee that they're not going to really, um, you know, worry too much about, um, and then ship them a whole bunch of stuff at once. And that's basically what the pantry program is. And that program seems to be doing pretty well for them. Um, it's grown 
growing really fast, according to some of the brands that um, I work with that are participating in it. So, I mean, I think, you know, thinking about like where the future is and, and pantry is still kind of challenging. It's hard to get your items set up in it and you've got to like work. I mean, you can't, it's not like an automated thing yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in thinking about like where, where is the next gen of this thing going? Um, because I mean, the writing on the wall is that like Amazon's not going to keep carrying all these products that lose money in this, in the consumable space. Um, or they're just going to get really refined assortment. Um, and so programs like Pantry, um, programs like, you know, Prime Now or the Pickup Points or, you know, whatever, those are the Amazon ones. But then like what we were just talking about with Click and Collect, like, um, I, I think that, you know, expanding their, your thinking outside of kind of the current challenges you're having with your Amazon retail business is um, is critical. And the brands that are doing that are the ones that are going to be set up for success because they planted seeds and kind of started that process now. Yeah, I, uh, this is an interesting one. So so let's step outside of consumables and take a, a, cat, a category that's like maybe more mature, like uh, electronics or apparel or something. The one I keep hearing is when the brand will say, when I think five or here, 10 years down the line, Amazon's my exclusive retailer. And that scares me because it's a race to zero. Um, so that's why a lot of brands are opting out. That's that's one of the reasons, you know, then they have map pricing and controlling the 3P marketplace. And what do you think that's the, you know, you're obviously have drunk a little bit of Amazon Kool-Aid over the last 10 years, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but you know, is that, is that what we're going to be facing is, is this kind of, you know, it, do brands have a logical argument to not be on Amazon because they're kind of feeding their own destruction? Well, I don't think, I mean, it would be difficult to not be on Amazon because of the opportunity that it presents to brands, you know, just from like a revenue perspective um, and sometimes from a profit perspective too. But I think it's, I don't think it's a wise choice, you know, it kind of depends on a lot of factors, but it's not a wise choice to like think of Amazon as your exclusive e-commerce player. I mean, the brands that I see that have healthier businesses, um, with Amazon are ones that sell to multiple e-commerce players and are investing in other ones, not investing like investors, but, you know, investing time and energy and kind of getting their business up and running and marketing and things like that on some of the other players. And so that's where the, I mean, I think that's, um, that's probably the, that's like the healthier business model is to be a little more diversified. Um, but if you're thinking that you're going to be exclusive on Amazon, I mean, they change the game there every six months and, you know, it, it only takes kind of like one change that's incongruous with your business model um, for you to just be out. And, you know, maybe that's private label or maybe, you know, maybe they launch a private label of your product or maybe they, you know, come to you with terms like negotiation terms that are unacceptable to you or that you can't, you can't actually cannot accommodate and, you know, still run a business. Um, And if they're your only e-tailer you're kind of in a really tough spot. Yeah, I don't think they're setting up Amazon to be exclusive. I think they, they see Amazon becoming a de facto exclusive because when they look at the online players, uh, Amazon's so much bigger than everyone else that that it's hard to build that diversity that you're talking about. That they That's kind of what they worry about. They kind of say, my brand's probably strongest right now, so maybe there's a strategy where I don't, I don't help Amazon be the 800-pound the gorilla. 
Well, and I think that's where it's important. I mean, it, that's where it's important to look on Amazon at some of your third party partners. I mean, if you're direct with Amazon, you've presumably all you're presumably also selling to other people that are reselling on Amazon. Um, and it's important to look at them, too, because they're often selling across multiple platforms, not just Amazon. Um, and so, you know, they're giving you I mean, it might be still small, but they're giving you some distribution elsewhere. They're also giving you an alternative if you don't want to sell directly to Amazon anymore, but you still want to have a presence there and have a good brand experience and have, you know, have sales. Um, so, I mean, I think that's kind of like a, another diversification strategy. Yeah. Let's, um, so with private label, let's kind of jump into that a little bit. What do you tell brands when they say, Hey, I'm really concerned that, you know, Amazon just opened up a private label in my category. What, how do you explain that? I mean, I think they should be concerned, (laughs) but it's not unlike, you know, the whole history of, of retail with, with private label. And, you know, um, retailers kind of copying top selling products. It's not not dissimilar, but the difference is, um, you know, how they're able to manipulate the digital shelf um, to be able to favor their products over others. Um, and, you know, we don't have any like confirmation that they're doing that, but it sure seems like they are when you look at the site and, you know, you're searching for backpacks and, you know, the one that looks just like the branded one, um, but it's private label comes up before it in the search results. Amazon's <laughs> um, you know, choice. Really, yeah, totally. And it's Amazon's choice. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's, it's something really to be scared, scared about for sure. But if you're, but also kind of going back to the concept of diversification, if you've been, you know, totally, um, if your business is so driven by one or two SKUs, um, you know, you're a ripe candidate for it, for, for Amazon taking on sort of a private label, um, copycat approach. And so, you know, figuring out how to grow other sections of your business so that you're not completely dependent on that top skew because Amazon might go private label it, um, I think is probably a good idea. Um, and, and, you know, I've seen them give like favoring some of the marketing and, and obviously all the marketing is free for them. So they're, I mean, those are going to be really high margin items, but they look like they're just going after pretty much every category now, um, which makes sense. I mean, that makes sense for them to do. I think you may have inadvertently given this the secret sauce away earlier. Uh, just get into the live plants category. <laughs> really difficult for Amazon to copy that. It must be because they kept asking it as an interview question and they never launched it. So there you go. Exactly. Which is odd because I feel like that's one of the first categories that invented cloning. <laughs> that actually is that I think that actually might be irony. I'm not sure. Yes. Nailed it. Thank you for that. Uh, <laughs> So I know you're going to be at IRCE in a couple of weeks, and I, if I understand it right, the topic is tips for negotiating with Amazon. Um, can you totally ruin the IRCE panel by like giving our <laughs> listeners some of the the high level pitfalls and tips now? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I mean, the, the presentation is really just going to talk about. Um, I think it's another one of those areas where a little bit of education will really help brands be successful in their negotiations. Um, And the biggest, um, you know, the biggest sort of failing or pitfall um, that I saw when I was at Amazon negotiating with brands is just brands not preparing for the negotiation, Um, not coming with, with data, not coming with questions, you know, not being prepared um, not really thinking through the uh, Amazon's perspective and being kind of blindsided by some of the asks. And granted, Amazon's asks are huge, so you know, it makes sense to be kind of blindsided by at least by the numbers, but it shouldn't be blindsided by the concepts. And so, um, 
we'll talk a little bit about that in the presentation. We'll talk about how to prepare, um, you know, what information to request from Amazon um, if you have an opportunity to do so. I mean, I think, um, and I and I think another important thing is, you know, a lot of times, especially some of the mid mid tier to small brands are not actually negotiating with a live person. And so, how do you navigate that? Right? Like, you're probably negotiating with a robot. It doesn't look like a robot. An email comes to you that looks like it's from a person, but it's, you know, it's, it's definitely an automated, it's an automated process. So we'll talk about how to, how to prepare, um, how to actually execute. And then, you know, we'll kind of go through some of the typical asks from Amazon and, and talk about like when these might make sense for you. Like, you know, who, who does it make sense for it to think about like the crosstalk program or, um, you know, when, when might, might it make sense for you to invest in some of the, the larger marketing programs or, um, or a crap allowance or, you know, we'll, we'll kind of talk a little bit about that. Cool. One of the things you introduced me to is this, uh, I always get this wrong, but like driving the car really fast, uh, with your, foot on the gas and your hands off the wheel. Tell, tell us more about that program. <laughs> it's called hands off the wheel. Um, yeah. So, you know, Amazon's growing quickly and scaling and, um, and it's really critical that they get more and more automated. And so, um, you know, I'm seeing with my clients and also on a lot of the forums, like the LinkedIn group and things like that, that um, a lot of brands are just really at the end at the receiving end of more automation than ever before. And they're hearing from their buyers, um, you know, how critical it is that they continue to automate and, you know, not place manual orders and let the system do its thing and kind of have their hands off the wheel. That's the hands off the wheel um, concept. So, um, you know, and I, and that's definitely always been kind of a push at Amazon, but I feel like it's getting, my brands are seeing more of it kind of in recent years. Um, in in just Amazon's interest in automation. When you negotiate with the uh, with that machine, does it sound like Alexa? <laughs> I mean, I think if you get on the phone, if you get on the phone, you're talking to a real person. But you know, a lot of the, for now, the email. for now. I'm for sorry, now. Jason. We're gonna have to cut your crap allowance. Uh, <laughs> here, here's the tip: you're not talking to a real person when it's signed Mayday. That's always a. Uh, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Come on, you guys don't get Amazon Fire jokes. No, I get. It. I laughed. Right. I totally okay. get it. <laughs> Scott's new to the whole ecosystem, so we have to go slower for him. Uh, although annoyingly, <laughs> St- Scott's car can drive really fast with the hands off the wheel, which I'm a little jealous of. Do you have a self-driving car? I have a Tesla. It doesn't have that that feature, though. I got it. I was too early an adopter. It's equivalent of having an iPhone one right now. <laughs> <laughs> I can see that. You can still drive really fast with your hands off the wheel once. Yeah, yeah. That's my, it just uh, doesn't mean it just yeah. doesn't mean it's safe. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. And any big mistakes you see people making in negotiations? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest one is just giving, like, especially for brands that are newer to the platform or have experienced kind of significant growth. And so it's like one of the first times they're actually talking to someone at Amazon, like a live person. Um, They just give too much away in the first year Um, that, you know, they don't hold back enough um, funding for themselves because Amazon's going to come back to you every year. Like it's an annual negotiation process. They're going to come back to you every year and they're going to want more. And, you know, you don't want to give it all away um, 
in the in your first couple of years with Amazon, you've got to kind of create a reserve at, or, or just kind of the other um, pitfall is just kind of um, signing up for the most you can possibly do for that year from a from a Amazon funding perspective. And that doesn't give you any kind of slush fund for the stuff they're going to come to you with uh, for throughout the year, like participation in certain marketing programs that, you know, they didn't know about in the beginning of the year because, you know, they're they plan a little bit more kind of three to six months in advance um, or, you know, a price matching error or some chargebacks or um, and you don't want to be in a position all year where all of those little dings are extraordinarily painful because you already gave them like the most you could give them that year. Um, so I always recommend kind of creating a reserve fund for yourself. Um, you know, don't uh, like some leftover monies or, you know, let room in your budget to, to pay for some of those things throughout the year. Yeah, Prime Day is only two months away. Don't don't uh, shoot. <laughs> so so I, I've never been a brand and or worked for one, but I imagine it would be really weird because there's probably this old school believing you know, belief that you you form relationships. And I know I've I've been to Bentonville a couple of times, and you, <clears throat> you just see the brand reps just kind of going through there, and you know it's almost like the whole airport's geared up for them. There's a whole infrastructure, and there's this whole pilgrimage to Walmart, you meet that guy, you try to build a relationship, go out to drinks, you know, the, the Dan Draper martini lunch and all that stuff. And then you probably, so you do all that. And then you try to, you probably go try to meet someone at Amazon and they probably won't meet with you unless you're like, you know, super de duper top tier brand. So then now you're kind of talking to this AI machine and it must be really <laughs> off putting to these, these brands, you know, um, is that, is that kind of how they, how they feel? Is that, yeah, yeah, especially some of the larger, more established ones that are really accustomed to working with brick and mortar. You know, they're 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 they believe that they will be able to see greater success on Amazon through forming a relationship with their buyer. And I will tell you, like the last thing those buyers want to do is form a lot of relationships because it's extremely time consuming. It doesn't help them execute on their initiatives. Um, you know, it might get them like a tinge more co-op. Um, but they can also get that by sending out like a hundred automated emails. Um, and so, you know, I, I still remember kind of the concept of like, you, there's the Amazon buying team, they're in their jeans and occasionally flip flops and the, the, the brand comes to visit and they're all wearing their suits and they want to do a line review. And like that concept is just totally lost <laughs> on the Amazon vendor management team, you know, um, like they, they, they're not going to make us, they're not going to make selection choices. They're going to list everything on the site. So it doesn't, it's not in their best interest to learn a whole lot about the products and how each ones are different from one another. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I definitely see a lot of brands still trying to form relationships, but I'm also seeing a lot of them are just getting like savvy about that because they've already had a couple of turnovers in their vendor manager. Um, and they're realizing that like, actually the best thing they can do is educate themselves about the platform and how it works um, because the most successful brands just really understand how the platform works and how to work with it and keep they keep up with the changes to it um, I think you know the Amazon I think Jeff there was a Jeff quote once and he said we're not in the business of selling things we're in the business of helping people buy things and they just you know Amazon believes they are a platform um, for selling things they don't believe they're a retailer which I think kind of speaks to you know why they don't think the relationship development is super important yeah, that's an important point. Jason uh, spends more time with the the offline guys than I do, but it, but I'm always stricken by there's this still belief, there's still this belief, uh, and I'm a computer engineering guy, but there's this belief that there's this merchant king or uh, 
merchant prince or whatever you call it, Jason. Yep, uh, yep. And, you know, they can predict what people are going to do and they go and they buy that hot thing and, you know, they create the fashion themselves. And um, that I'm, I'm constantly surprised how much that still exists. And I think, you know, this, this Amazon model of why should you choose, like put everything up and let the customer, it just seems so obvious to me, but it really is so counter to how all these other companies are built that, that, you know, it's this, they have to get even closer to that existential dilemma than they are right now, which is hard to believe, but it's just constantly amazing to me in the real retail world that, that no one else really gets that. You know, there's still some element of that. And that's really like, in my opinion, when I was a buyer, that, that was like the most exciting thing about being a buyer. What if you find the next big thing? Like, what if, it, what if you're the one that brought it onto the site? Um, and I remember going to trade shows and finding like weird, obscure products, particularly like the expos and, um, you know, being like, maybe this is like the new coconut water. Like, we don't know what is, what's it going to be. <laughs> so I think there's still some element of that, but I mean, definitely a lot less than, than traditional retailers. It's not going to come from a line review, I guess. No, it's probably not going to come from a line <laughs> review. <laughs> Well, it has happened again. We've used up our allotted hour. Uh, Andrea, thank you very much for uh, spending time and uh, educating all of us, and especially for educating Scott. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for having me on the show, and it was um, really great to be here. Yeah, and I, I said at the top of the show, every time I talk to you, I learn 100 things, and I think I have checked at least that many boxes. I, it's going to take me a while to count them, uh, but we're in that that neighborhood. Uh, and as a reminder to listeners, if you enjoyed Andrea's view on Amazon, brand strategy, and, and, and other topics, she's one of the speakers at Internet Retailer Conference and Exhibitions Amazon and Me Workshop, which is right around the corner. It'll be June 6th in Chicago. Uh, and Andrea, if folks want to follow you, you're writing online, you mentioned you've got some articles coming out. Um, where's the best place they can find you? Is that a Twitter handle or a Snapchat or where, where do you hang out online? I'm mostly on LinkedIn. So you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, and it's, uh, it's Andrea Lay, L-E-I-G-H. Awesome. Well, thanks again. And we really appreciate it. Yeah. And we'll make sure to get that in the show notes. So until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com.